Just a reminder of the two basic announcements we have going now. Next Thursday night, I'm going to add one. Next Thursday night, there will not be Bible class on Thanksgiving evening. We never have th- we never have Bible class on that Thursday evening. The other announcement relates to the Greece and Israel trip. So those that are thinking about it, planning about it, whatever you're speculating, praying, hoping, whatever it might be, if you uh, think you might want to go, I encourage you to register. Uh, the registration fee will be refundable until probably late February, early March, before we actually have to pay any money to anybody. But at least it gives us um, information. The airlines, the hotels are beginning to want to know how many rooms we're actually going to need, how many spaces, all of that kind of thing, because that's all at a premium. And so, uh, but this week I got email from Lindy, and she doesn't want to have a cancellation date of 1 December, so we've got uh, till the end of January. But we still need to get those numbers and find out, so if you're considering it, please let us know. And then uh, we're going to have our annual Christmas slash Thanksgiving luncheon on Sunday, December the 15th, following the morning uh, worship service. We always provide the meat. People sign up to bring all the sides and desserts and everything else, and it's a tremendous time of uh, getting to know each other and fellowship and thanksgiving as well for just God's blessings for the last year as well as for uh, Christmas and the provision of a Savior. Now, this year will be a little different because we're going, we have invited the Korean church that meets here with us to join with us for for lunch. So we have our church service at 10.30 to approximately 12. They meet from 12.30 to 1.30. And so what we're going to do is massage that a little bit, and we'll have in between the two services our Christmas luncheon. So that will be interesting because some people are going to experience Korean food for the first time. And I'm sure... Some of the Korean folks are going to experience a few other things that they haven't normally experienced in terms of southern Texas uh, Christmas Thanksgiving meals. So it's going to be a great uh, time of uh, uh, bicultural celebration. So that's going to be a great time. So plan on being here. We're also going to have a uh, children's dedication. I sent out an announcement on that today. So if any of those with kids under the approximate age of six six-ish, want to participate, ask me, and let me know, and we'll have a, uh, include them in the service. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we go to get started in our study, we need to make sure that we are spiritually prepared, which means that if necessary, we need to confess sin. This is a beginning of worship, and we, whenever we're studying the Word, that is a, an act of worship. So we need to make sure that we are spiritually cleansed, prepared to study the Word and focus on the Lord. So that means that Uh, We'll have a few moments of silent prayer in order to confess sin if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Our Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this week, the opportunity to just serve you, to grow and mature as believers, to continue to study your word, to continue to reflect upon the many ways in which your word impacts our life and changes our thinking, helping us to understand uh, you more and to learn to love you more as we uh, walk with you by means of God the Holy Spirit. Father, we're thankful that we have this time to study your word. We're thankful for a nation that gives, that recognizes the freedom that we have to uh, study your word, to freely proclaim the truth of your word. Father, in the midst of all of this circus in uh, Washington, we pray that you would, uh, we know that you will oversee these things in your sovereignty, but we pray that the truth will come out and that there would be uh, more light and less heat. And we know that the only thing that will really cure the divisions in this nation is for people to humble themselves under your mighty hand, for there to be a return to submission to the authority of you and your word. And, Father, we know that only you can cause that to happen and bring that about. Father, we pray for us tonight that we might be able to focus on your word, be reminded of many truths that are foundational to our spiritual life, and that this might strengthen and encourage us in our walk with you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles now to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, and we'll get there eventually. But I want to review just a little bit as we're going forward in our study in 2 Peter. We have come to the verses in verses 8 and 9, specifically in verse 8 which talks about uh, not being barren, spiritually barren, or unfruitful. And this uh, follows the exhortation in verses 5 through 7, where a series of Christian virtues are emphasized that are all manifested in our spiritual life as we grow and as we walk, walk, uh, walk with the Lord. So, In verse 8, Peter says, if these things, that is these virtues, and this isn't an exhaustive list, it's just another list. We're going to look at uh, Galatians chapter 5, uh, 16 to 25 tonight, and that has another list of the fruit of the Spirit, which is similar, overlaps on a couple of categories here, a couple of virtues, and this is the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in our life. And as I pointed out in the previous lessons, fruit is often misunderstood to be something quantifiable in terms of how many people we've witnessed to, how many, how much money we've given, how many people come to church, how many people are in Sunday school classes, and all of these kinds of things. But the focus in the Scripture is on character transformation, which comes only because of the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is a supernatural way of life. It is based on the supernatural power of God the Holy Spirit who transforms us on the supernatural power of the Word of God because it is truth. And as Jesus prayed uh, before he went to the cross, he prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy Word is truth. It is the Word of God that transforms us under the ministry of of God the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to focus on that. But if we're walking by the Spirit, then we won't be barren. That is, 
non-productive. We won't be uh, lazy. We won't be uh, 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 non-productive. We won't be um, just living our lives in futility. And we... And this is then qualified by the phrase, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, because that is foundational. So we'll uh, get into that in more detail by next time. Okay, so tonight we want, I want to finish up what we've been covering the last two lessons in terms of what is necessary to produce fruit. Okay, in verse 8, uh, for if these things are yours and abound, you will be, and that should be translated, you are neither barren, and that has the uh, idea of not being idle or lazy or unproductive nor unfruitful, that is not bearing fruit in terms of the character qualities of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans six twenty one and 22 tells us that fruit is a character quality. Romans 6.21, which is addressed to believers, says, What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? Now there it's focusing on the character that was in these believers when they were unbelievers. Uh, what fruit did you have? What was your life like? What was it characterized by? What was your character like? And the end result of that was death. Now this isn't spiritual death. This isn't eternal death. This is a death-like existence for the believer. Uh, the end of anything that is not energized by God, that is not the result of a believer who is regenerate, walking by the Spirit in the church age, is producing that which is a carnal or temporal death. That's one of the categories of death. James says that, it, that if faith does not have works... It is a dead faith. Now, people misunderstand that. They think that means that it's a non-existent faith. But to be dead, it has to previously been alive. So that means that he's talking to believers all the way through the epistle to James. He is addressing those who are my brethren, my beloved brethren. And what he's challenging them to have is a productive faith, not a non-productive faith. If you have faith without works, he says, what good is that? It is a dead faith. It is a non-productive faith. It's the same uh, carnal uh, fruit or works that we have in Romans 6.21. And then in Romans 6.22, he says, but now having been set free from sin, that's true for every believer. And having become slaves of God, that's true for every believer from the instant of salvation we're no longer positionally slaves to sin, and we are positionally slaves to God and slaves to righteousness. But unfortunately, a lot of believers still act and want to act as if they're slaves to sin. They want to be. They are like the Israelites in the wilderness, and they want to go back to the slavery of Egypt. And so he reminds them that we have been set free from sin. And having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness, that is, towards sanctification, and the end is everlasting life. Now, this they already have eternal life in terms of spending eternity in heaven because they're justified. That was the topic in Romans 3, Romans 4, Romans 5. Now he's talking about how believers are to live. So Romans 6 
has passed from justification in 3, 4, and 5 to sanctification. Everybody misunderstands the concept here and in all kinds of of a memory verse packets and things like that. People memorize Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And they use that as a salvation verse. It's not a salvation verse in the context. It's talking about living this, the Christian life, that if you continue to sin and to let sin reign in your mortal bodies, as Paul puts it earlier in Romans chapter 6, then then the result is death, a death-like existence. You're living a non-productive life, living like an unbeliever. But if you turn back to God and confess sin and walk by the Spirit, then you will experience that richness of life. This is the same thing we talked about in Psalm 32, Psalm 51, when David had not confessed his sin. It was a miserable life. His bones ached. He was depressed. He was not living the life God intended for him. It was a death-like existence. But once he confessed sin, then he experienced the joy of his forgiveness as we studied Tuesday night in Psalm 32. That's, that's the difference. So this is talking about the death-like existence of the disobedient believer who has not confessed sin. So the fruit here talks about the character quality, the production of the spiritual life for each believer. And we look at these four, five passages. We're looking at them. Abiding in Christ, John 15, 1 to 8. Walking in the light, Ephesians 5, 8. 1 John 1, 7, that's how far we got last time. Tonight we'll start with the section in Philippians 1, 10, and also go into Galatians 5, 16 and following. In each of these, what we see are certain statements made that are the prerequisites, the uh, primary conditions for producing fruit. In John 15, we saw that it was to abide in Christ. If you don't abide in Christ, there's no fruit. In Ephesians 5, 9, it was walking in the light. Well, that means that walking in the light and abiding in Christ are roughly synonymous. Philippians 1, 11, we'll see how that relates to walking in the light, and then we'll come to Galatians 5.22 and 23, which lists the fruit of the Spirit, and that's the result of walking by the Spirit back in Galatians 5.5.16. So we'll get, get through that tonight. The problem is defining fruit. What you have is within what is called the Lordship Salvation Camp, works salvation, whether it's overt or covert. By overt, I mean those who say you have to you have to believe in Jesus plus something else. You have to believe in Jesus and be baptized. You have to believe in Jesus and do good works. You have to believe in Jesus and change your life. They're adding something to the gospel at the beginning. In Lordship Salvation, which grows out of the fifth point in the five points of Calvinism. Remember, Calvinism has five points, tulip. The last point, P, stands for perseverance. Now, within Calvinism, there were those who understood perseverance uh, 
<clears throat> in two different ways. There, one way, which is the way that Lewis Berry Chafer Dow Seminary understood it, and many others, that Christ would persevere in keeping us saved. But there was another very strong branch, and still a very strong branch of Calvinism, which taught that you as the believer must persevere in obedience. And you won't know until the very end of your life if you have truly been obedient and persevere to the very, very end. One of the saddest stories I ever heard, which uh, occurred about um, maybe 17, 18 years ago, was when a very well-known Presbyterian pastor, theologian by the name of James Montgomery Boyce was nearing the end of, of his life. He was very, very ill. He was in the hospital. They expected the Lord to take him home at any day. And at that same time, uh, R.C. Sproul, some of you may have heard him on the radio, uh, he went to be with the Lord not long ago, so he knows the truth now. And um, uh, Sproul was conducting one of his many, many large Bible conferences, a very strong five-point uh, Calvinist. And R.C. Sproul said every night, he gave a little update on Boyce's health, and then said, we need to pray that Dr. Boyce will not turn his back on the Lord and will persevere to the end so we'll, he'll have that certainty of salvation. See, salvation is ultimately based not on the grace promise of God and the gospel. It's based on slipping works into the back door because uh, those folks would say, yes, you are saved by grace through faith. But real faith, genuine faith, saving faith, will have the evidence that goes with it. And so you can tell by the fruit whether or not they are saved. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, as the Gospel of John says over 95 times, that salvation is based on simply only believing in Jesus, not believing and persevering, not, believe, not even repenting and believing. Repentance is a word that is never used in the Gospel of John. So if you think somebody can be saved by simply reading the Gospel of John and you then believe that they must repent, then you have a contradiction because the Bible teaches that it is by faith alone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So fruit is quantified by a large number of Christians in many different ways. And that's just among, I just talked about the Calvinist camp, the tulip crowd. There's the other flower. You all remember the other flower? Daisy theology. That's the theology of the Arminians. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Because they don't know from one day to the next whether they've committed some sin. You all ever see the Babylon Bee? They have some great little uh, satires. And there was one earlier this week that was a news report of whatever the name was that they used. John Smith, Christian, left to go to work in Los Angeles traffic and immediately lost his salvation as he entered into the southbound lane of I-10. <laughs> I thought that really made a point. They So often Arminians... You have to change the definition of sin, or otherwise you're just sort of be, being saved and resaved and resaved uh, hour after hour. And if you're in Houston traffic or Los Angeles traffic, that may be 
from one minute to the next. So fruit is not the quantifiable moral trans uh, not the quantifiable overt things such as how many people you got saved or how much money and fruit is not the necessary evidence of salvation it is the evidence of sanctification it's the evidence of our christian growth and our christian life but not the necessary evidence of being a regenerate believer So we're looking at these elements, and what we have seen is in each of these that there is a specific condition that is stated that is necessary to produce fruit. In John 15, 4, that Jesus says, the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in him. In John 15, 5, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. So the condition is abiding in Christ. It's the sole condition to produce fruit in Christ, to produce fruit. And other passages that mention walking in the light, walking by the Spirit, these are just looking at basically the same thing from different vantage points. But they're, so they all come together. And we've seen that. We looked at Ephesians 5 last time. We talked about walking in the light. And that that is... Uh, goes along with being filled by means of the Spirit. And I connected the results of being filled by the Spirit. It's not the Spirit filling you. You're the believer in Christ in the church age. You can't get any more of the Holy Spirit than what you have. You're not being filled with more and more and more of the Holy Spirit. You hear people pray, Oh, God, give me more of your Spirit. That's blasphemy. You'll never get more of the Spirit. The the grammar here isn't saying you're filled with the content of the Spirit, but you're filled with something by the Spirit. But it doesn't tell you what the content is in this passage. That's not Paul's point. The results, as we saw, was uh, genuine biblical worship, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and gratitude, giving thanks to the Lord, submitting to one another, going on to having right relationships within the marriage and within the home. In Colossians 3.16, we saw that the command isn't to be filled by means of the Spirit. The command is to let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. But the results of that are the same as the filling by means of the Spirit. So those work together. The Spirit fills us with the Word of God. That's the content. The Spirit is the means. That's the role of God, the Holy Spirit, in our sanctification. And we then looked at 1 John uh, 1.5, and the command is to walk in the light. And similar to what we saw in Ephesians 5, 7, and 8, that we're to, we are light, and now we are to walk as light. So in summary, last time I closed out and I said, From Ephesians, we learn that we are children of light. That's our position. That's our identity in Christ. That's who we are adopted into this new royal family. That's our position. Second, we learn that we are to walk as children of light. From 1 John, we learn that God is pure light. He's righteousness, justice, and truth. Fourth, we learn that his character is incompatible with darkness. So fifth, that we cannot walk in darkness and, in, and enjoy the partnership in life with God. 
So we are to walk in the light. Sixth thing that we saw from comparing these passages is that the necessary condition for producing the fruit of the Spirit or the fruit of light, there's a textual problem there in Ephesians 5, is walking in the light, which means to enjoy the active partnership. Koinonia is a word that means fellowship or partnership. Okay, It involves people being together, actively joined together towards some goal. So we enjoy the active partnership in life with God. Seventh, that walking in the life is also characterized by being filled in our souls with the word of Christ. The word of Christ dwells. The word there that's used in Colossians uh, 3 means it makes its home in us. It's from the root or making a home or a dwelling. Therefore, the eighth point, abiding in John 15 is the condition for fruit. Walking in the spirit of the light is the condition for fruit in Ephesians 5. Now we come to Philippians 1, 9 through 11. You probably looked at that and said, where do you get light there? I'll show you. Paul says, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. So this is a priority in Paul's prayer that our love, that is the ultimate application, sort of what we might say is an end application. Jesus said, a new command I give to you that you love one another, and by this, your love for one another, will all men know that you are my disciples. So this is what is evident in a maturing believer, that our love will abound more and more, and then he says, in knowledge and in discernment. Now, that tells you right away that love that he's talking about isn't an emotion. Emotion has nothing to do with knowledge and discernment. What I want to point out here is the word that is used for knowledge is this word, epinosis. Now, you've heard a lot about this word over the years, and it is something more than just knowledge, gnosis. Uh, We'll talk about this more next time. But it has, uh, it, it shifts its meaning. Problem that I think some people have, have had is that they think that every time you see the word gnosis or epinosis, it always means the same thing, that it's technical language. It's not technical language. Uh, these words have a range of meaning like many words. Some words are technical, like logos, but other words are are words that are used in a little bit more of a technical sense in some passages. Now, what I'll show you next time is that when you break down Paul's use of gnosis and epinosis, he uses it in different ways during different periods of his life. Before the prison epistles, he used it in two or three different ways. In the prison epistles, it's It's not used in Philemon, but in Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians. It's used basically the same way, and that is what I have up here on the screen. Uh, There and in 2 Peter, it has the the emphasis of the word is a knowledge that is directed toward application. It's not just theoretical knowledge. It is knowledge that is targeted towards specific application. So it goes beyond simple gnosis. Now, gnosis can also have that meaning, that words overlap. So that's what makes it 
uh, <clears throat> a little bit uh, different to uh, to understand. So it is with knowledge and discernment. Discernment is application of the word to specific situations in life. Now we come to verse uh, ten, and we get the purpose. The purpose is that you may approve the things that are excellent. Now, one of the things that we see in most Christian life is that we have a lot of decisions to make, and in most cases, most of us are not making decisions between that which is evil and that which is good. Most of us are confused with priorities, and we're trying to make decisions between what's good and what's excellent. And that's the challenge in in the Christian life. And so as we develop in our knowledge of the word, walking by the spirit, then in this sense of epinosis used here and in Ephesians and in Second Peter is knowledge it's targeted towards application. And knowledge and all discernment for the purpose of approving the things that are excellent. In other words, evaluating our choices so that we move in the direction of excellence and not in the, in the direction of just mere acceptability or mere mediocrity. That we may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere. So see, first, there is the growth in knowledge which produces epinosis, which produces discernment. That leads to being able to make good decisions in choosing that which is excellent. That then leads to the next level is that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Now, the word for sincere is a compound word here at the bottom, elikrinos. Eli Krinas. Now, the second part, Krine, or Eli Krines, Eli uh, Krine comes from the root meaning to judge, meaning to evaluate. But that first part of the word comes from the root Helios, which is the sun. The sun is the source of light. When light is shed upon decisions, then you can make wise decisions. This is where walking in the light comes comes to play in this. Uh, in fact, one of the lexicons that I examined says that this ha- that sincerity here has to do with one who reflects light which may not quite fit what we're saying here, but that's the idea here. It's not somebody who's sincere, who just believes so certainly in the goodness of whatever they're doing. It is the idea that they have been exposed to the light. And as a result of that, because they've been walking in the light, they are able to make wise judgments. So that's what a sincere person is, somebody who's making wise judgments because they ha- their thinking has been enlightened because the Word of God has enlightened their soul, that's illuminated their soul, and they are 
making wise decisions based on the Word of God. So this sort of connects the importance of that walking in the light. Light, as I pointed out last time, has different senses. It's used in different ways metaphorically in Scripture. One is to be emphasize purity and righteousness and truth, and the other is to emphasize illumination and revelation. And then in verse 11, it says, now notice this is all one sentence, and so it's a little complicated to put all the parts together. It says, being filled, and that's translated with a present tense. And I know what the translators may have been thinking, that it's emphasizing the present results of a completed past action. So they've translated it with the present tense. But that often communicates to people that it's a, a present ongoing action. It is a perfect, it's a perfect uh, participle, and a perfect participle means perfect tense always indicates completed action. And in this structure, it would be a causal participle because they're able to approve the things that are excellent because they have already been filled with the fruit of righteousness. So as they walk in the light of God's word, they have growth in knowledge and discernment. That gives them the scale of values to be able to approve that which is excellent as opposed to that which is merely good or acceptable. And then this leads to a character development of sincerity, which is that they have that ability because they've been enlightened to make those wise decisions and it comes from a character transformation toward righteousness. They've already been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus to the glory and the praise of God. So that gives us a good understanding, again, of fruit as character transformation, building a morality, but it's not simple morality. It is a a biblical or spiritual morality, spiritual virtue. That's what Peter is talking about in Second, in Second Peter, adding to your faith virtue. It is a spiritual virtue. We always have to be careful when we think of morality in the Christian life because a lot of unbelievers can produce morality. Morality is for every person. We want people to be moral people. But what the Bible is talking about is something beyond morality. It's talking about that which the Holy Spirit produces in our lives. It is a supernatural character transformation that goes beyond basic morality to the spiritual virtues of the Christian life. So now I want to go back and look at our foundational passage on on fruit, which is in Galatians 5, 16 to 25, where we have the key verses on, on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 to uh, 23, the fruit of the Spirit. But we have to understand the context. And this is, an, again, like last time when we were in Ephesians and I started off talking about walking in the light 
And I said, we have these various commands for walking and took us all the way back to the first chapter, Paul's prayers there, and then the fact that as unbelievers we walked in darkness and tracing this theme of walking all the way through Ephesians. That helps us to understand Paul doesn't come out of left field with the phrase, walk in the light. There's a context. He builds. He sets the stage. He takes his time. Galatians 5.16, Paul says, speaking of himself, I say then, and of course he's speaking under divine inspiration, so this is God speaking to us through Paul, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That is a strong statement in the second half. The idea is that when we are walking in the Spirit, we'll look at what each of these things means in a minute, you shall not. It's a very strong statement. He is saying that it's impossible to walk by the Spirit and fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit. There's a war going on in each one of us. Flesh is a term for the sin nature. The sin nature is housed in our DNA. It was acquired as a result of Adam's original sin. And so every human being comes into this world with the sin nature, capacity for sin, and an inclination towards disobedience to God. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. In other words, what he's saying there is they're opposed to one another. It's either one or the other. But within certain Christian models of the spiritual life that you will find, such as the Reformed model, also the Arminian model, uh, other models that you have, the Roman Catholic model, they have people doing things from mixed motives. So it's partly good, partly bad, partly spiritual, partly not. That's not what this is saying. It's saying the spirit is contrary to the flesh so that you can't do the things that you wish. There is this opposition. It's one or the other. When you are, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to go into a deep cavern or a deep tunnel. Go someplace where, I remember when I was a kid and up at Camp Penile, there's a uh, caverns near there called Longhorn Caverns, and they took us way down, and you come into this you know large open area, and then they turn the lights off for a few seconds. And it is pitch black darkness. I've had them do the same thing in Carlsbad Caverns, and other places probably do that. There is not any light, and then... Then the, the guide will strike a match. One small match. And all of a sudden you can see everything. It's no longer dark. It's amazing how just one very small light in absolute darkness like that will illuminate everything. And that's the idea here. You're either in darkness or you're in light, there's no mixing of the two. Once you strike that match, you're not in darkness anymore. You can look around and you can see. So these are not um, things that you can blend together. It's the spirit against the flesh. They're contrary to one another. And then he describes the works of the, of the sin nature. 
But then he comes back to the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, notice it's a singular word, fruit. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, and he starts with love. Now, why does he start with love? Well, he starts with love because in Galatians 5.14, you have the introductory command for this section, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. So he's talking about love. And in order to love your neighbors yourself, you have to, A, walk by the Spirit, and then God the Holy Spirit will produce, B, the fruit of the Spirit, which starts with love. That's why he's beginning uh, with love as the first characteristic. And so then he lists those characteristics. This is the fruit. It's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, self-control is listed in those virtues in Second uh, Peter uh, 2 that we have studied, as well as love is. And he says, against those there is no law, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh. Now, what, why does he mean that there? They crucified the flesh. This is the same thing that he says in Romans 6, 3 through 6. There he says we've been crucified with Christ in his, and identified with him in, in his death, burial, and resurrection. So there, there's a positional thing that happens when we're saved, and that is the sin nature is, in this language, crucified. It's positionally dead in terms of its authority over us. It's still there. It still influences us, but it's up to our volition whether or not we're going to follow its influence. And so he's reminding them that those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh. The sin nature is no longer the sole dictator in your life. You, you're, you are now in Christ. You're a new creature in Christ. That sin nature has been crucified with its passions and desires. So let's go back and look at it. He says in verse 16, walk in the Spirit. We'll see that that means walk by means of the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now what's interesting when we get into this, just like when we got into Ephesians 5, 8, talking about walking in the light, this fits, the language here fits the context of the whole epistle of Galatians. So we're just going to walk our way through Galatians just a little bit. In Galatians chapter 3, this section begins. So if you think about the whole epistle to Galatians, the first two chapters go together, and then 3 through 6 go together. Chapters 1 and 2 deal with the legalism of, the, of, of justification, because Paul had a problem in that after he first went to the churches in Galatia, then there were a group that were called Judaizers. These were uh, believers with the Pharisaic background who were still holding on to the law as uh, an, an additional means of salvation or justification. So they were saying, yes, yes, you believe in Jesus, that's good. We need to do that, but... If you really want all of salvation be truly justified, you have to follow the Mosaic Law. So in chapters 1 and 2, he's dealing with the, uh, the legalism at salvation. And then they would say, but, but if you really want to experience the Christian life, you also have to follow the law. 
And that's what the second part of Galatians is all about. Galatians 3 through 6, is Paul is correcting the error of legalism in the spiritual life. We, we, um, we see that in the first part. The, he comes off at the very beginning and he just really, really blasts them. And he says in verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And by that he means a gospel of a different kind, a works-based gospel. And he just blasts them for that. And then he goes through chapter 1 and chapter 2, and it gets down to verse 16 of chapter 2, and here is his great statement on justification. It starts off with this uh, participle knowing, but it should be understood as a causal participle, because you know something, because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. That's a big but right there. It's either the works of the law or it's faith in Jesus Christ. It's one or the other. It's not both. It's not a little bit of one and a little bit of the other. This is a stark contrast but we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. We have believed in Christ Jesus. He says, why? That we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Now, he's not going to say that we should be lawless or that we should be immoral He's just saying the works of the law have nothing to do with justification. Obeying the law will not make you justified in the sight of God. That we are justified only by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. And then he hits it again. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. That's about as strong a statement as you can make excluding works from salvation. So he brings his discussion there to a close at the end of chapter 2, and then in chapter 3 he changes to the problem of legalism in the spiritual life. And he begins again, not with words that will win them as his friends. He didn't read Carnegie's book on how to win friends and influence people. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Well, if you're not obeying the truth, he's just saying you're deceptive and liars. That you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. You clearly understood the gospel, and now you're not obeying it. Then in verse 2 he says... The only, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? They say, now let's go back to when I came and you heard me explain the gospel. And I taught you about who Jesus Christ was as the promised and prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament. I gave you the Old Testament examples because many of them came out of a Jewish background. The Old Testament examples that Abraham was justified by faith. He believed God and God imputed it to him as righteousness in Genesis 15, 6. He said, I taught you all of these things 
And remember, did you that at the time you trusted in Christ, you received the Spirit. God the Holy Spirit came and permanently indwelt you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Or did you receive the Spirit by the hearing of faith? Well, the answer to that is simple. They, re- they received the Spirit by responding to the gospel, by believing in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now he's going to expand on that. But when he says, makes this statement in Galatians 3.2, it is comparable to two other passages. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says that we walk by faith and not by sight. And Colossians 2.6 says, Are you there, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, how did they receive him? By hearing of faith. By the hearing of faith. So faith is the basis for living the spiritual life, not by the works of the law. Now, the next verse after Galatians 3.2, he says, Are you so foolish? Having be- That's the second time he said this, so he was really irritated with them. They were probably glad to hear from him. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Now, I want you to notice the, the words I've underlined there. He uses the word Spirit for the Holy Spirit. He uses the word being made perfect and he uses the word flesh. You don't find those three words together again until you get to the passage we started with, Galatians 5.16. Everything between Galatians 3.3 and Galatians 5.16 is parenthetical. It's, it, he, before Paul can really get to the answer and the issue of, he raises in Galatians 3.3, he has to go through this lengthy explanation Now, I know some of you think I take a long time getting to the point sometimes. I'm not even close to Paul. If Paul were going to tell you how to brush your teeth, he would start with Genesis 1, 26 and 27 with the creation of man and that God designed your teeth a certain way. And then he would move on to talking about the fall, and now we have corruption, and so you're going to get cavities and all these other things. And then he would go from there to talking about your responsibility, but because you're a sinner, you failed in your responsibility. And, you know, the cavities in your teeth are just a sign of your uh, total depravity. And maybe three hours later, he would get around to actually telling you how to get a toothbrush and brush your teeth. So don't complain about me. I try to get there a lot faster than that. So what he's doing here is he's he's laying the groundwork, all of the information between 3.3 and 5.16. In 5.16 we have the phrase, let me put the Greek in here for you. He ha- we have the term spirit for the Holy Spirit. That phrase translated being made perfect in verse in th- Galatians 3.3 3 is the compound word epiteleo. Teleo is the root verb there. So he's added a, a prepositional prefix to it that intensifies it. Epiteleo. Like epinosis, the epi intensifies the gnosis. Okay, Galatians 5.16 
uses the word teleo, though, the root word. And so there's a certain parallelism between the two, that uh, gnosis is a big, broad concept, and as a subcategory of gnosis, you have epinosis, same thing with uh, teleo is the broad word, and a subcategory would be epiteleo. But you have these same words, and then the word flesh for the sin nature. Now, a well-known commentator on Galatians has said, the main point of Paul's rhetorical question here, however, has to do with the incongruity of beginning one's Christian life on one basis with the Spirit and then shifting somewhere in progress to another basis by human effort. What Paul wants his converts to see is that the Christian life is one that starts, is maintained, and comes to culmination only through dependence on the activity of God's Spirit. That is a profound statement. It starts, it continues, it, it develops, and it comes to its conclusion only on the basis of dependence on God's Spirit. That's the key point. That is said by uh, Richard Longenecker. Okay, now what we see in all of Galatians, two categories. There's a contrast between living by the Spirit or walking by the Spirit and legalism of the flesh. So we have a contrast between grace and law. We have a contrast between faith and works. We have a contrast between freedom and slavery. And we have a contrast between the Spirit and the flesh. These are all mutually exclusive. It's one or the other. Years ago, now this man may still be alive, but there was a radio Bible teacher in Dallas who would teach that you don't need to confess your sins, that you were automatically cleansed of everything as soon as you were saved. And he taught, and I know, and you know some people who had been influenced by him negatively, and um, that they didn't need to confess sin, and that whenever you prayed or witnessed or read your Bible, that you had mixed motives. And so some of it was good. Some of it, so they're blurring that. I'm telling you, this is a major problem in most of Christianity. They think, they, they're really treating the spiritual life as a life of morality, and it's not. It's a life of spirituality to be energized by God the Holy Spirit. All right, so what we see here is, first of all, Everything that the unbeliever does derives from his position in bondage to the sin nature and proceeds from the sin nature. Everything, even his very best, giving to charity, helping people, being a wonderful parent, uh, being a good employee, everything that an unbeliever does comes from the only nature he has, which is a sin nature. That's Isaiah 64, 6. All of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. All of our works of righteousness. Romans 6, 6, 6, 17, and 6, 18 all speak of the bondage of the unbeliever to the sin nature. Second, the unbeliever can live a moral, ethical life. Therefore, third, simple human morality may be the product of the sin nature. So just because somebody's moral doesn't mean they're living the Christian life. They can be a believer and be living a moral life in the power of the flesh, in the power of the sin nature. It has nothing to do with God, the Holy Spirit. 
Only a supernatural source can produce the virtues and Christ-like character unique to the Christian life. You can't pull yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps. It's got to be 100% the Holy Spirit. So in Galatians 5.14, which introduces this whole section, Paul says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he's using that as sort of a summary for all of the spiritual life, going back to what I quoted earlier in John 13, 34, and 35, that we have this new commandment to love one another. But notice the difference. In Galatians 5.14, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. But in John 13, 34, and 35, you're to love one another, which refers to other believers, as Christ loved you. Now, loving your neighbor like yourself, even an unbeliever can try to do that. But loving others as Christ loved you, well, that's totally different. That's a much higher standard. Christ is the one who gave his life for us. That's, that's a much higher standard than loving your neighbor as yourself. So when we get into Galatians 5.16, we have the command to walk by the Spirit. We also, in verse 18, have the phrase, led by the Spirit. When you're walking by the Spirit, you're following the Spirit. He's the leader, we're the follower. When we walk by means of the Spirit, the command is given to us to do the walking. It's a metaphor for living our life. But he's the one who's leading us. He's taking us in a direction. He's taking us down a path, as it were. And then we get to uh, the phrase living by the Spirit and walking by the Spirit in Galatians 5.25. Galatians 5.25, the word stokeo is the the Greek word for walk. It's peripateo in in 5.16, but it shifts shifts to the idea of walking, uh, following in the footsteps of somebody, following step by step. It has that idea. So if you're following in somebody's footsteps or you're going down a path and there are stepping stones, a path has been laid down in front of you, that path that is laid down by the Holy Spirit for us is the Word of God. We follow the Holy Spirit by the path that he led, that he's leading us down, which is laid down by the word of God. So by obeying the word of God in dependence on the Holy Spirit, that's what pulls together for the spiritual life. This takes us back to what Paul's problem with the Galatian believers was. He says, have you started in the spirit, but now you're trying to be made complete by the flesh? You're no longer being led by the Spirit. You're no longer walking by the Spirit. You're no longer following step by step behind the Spirit. You're trying to do it on your own. You've shifted subtly to a life of morality instead of a life of spirituality. So walking is a present active imperative. That means this should characterize your life. Present imperatives just simply mean This should be the standard operating procedure for your spiritual life. An aorist imperative would have the idea of making it a priority. 
So in one book he may use an heiress, in another book he may use a present. It's depending on the context and why he's uh, stating this command. Walking by the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So walking involves a step-by-step procedure. Walking involves step-by-step concentration. And I got a great illustration of this years ago. I've never found a better one. I had gone to speak at a church three nights in uh, Poughkeepsie, New York, back years and years ago. And the pastor was picking me up outside the hotel, and I was running a little bit late, and I came down the elevator, and the doors opened, and I was just about to just rush out, and they were having some sort of, of seniors convention. And the hallway was filled with people. There was, there was no room, no place to go. And every one of them was walking with a walker. I was getting ready to teach on this passage that night. God was giving me an illustration. And so you're watching all of these seniors go by, and they've got their walkers, and they have to really think about what they're doing. If, you, if you're walking with a walker, it's very easy to lose your balance or to fall down. You have to pay attention. It is a step-by-step procedure. You can't get your eye 10 feet ahead of you and be thinking about something else like we do when, when we don't have to walk independence upon a walker. So it's that concentration and step-by-step procedure following the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us the specific how-tos in the Scripture, and it's always directed toward a goal. So in Galatians 5.16, Paul says, walk by means of the Spirit. It emphasizes dependence. We are to be dependent upon the Spirit. We can't do it without Him. We can only do it in dependence upon Him. And then that next phrase, you shall not fulfill. The shall not is really important in the Greek. It's a double negative. Now, in English, double negative is wrong, but there are two different words that are used for negatives in Greek. And when you combine them together with a subjunctive mood uh, verb, It has the idea of stating something that's impossible. So that's what you have here. He's saying if you're walking by the Spirit, if you're on that walker and you're going step by step and you're focused and concentrating on depending on that walker, you can't fall down. Well, wait a minute. I fall down all the time and I sin. Well, that's because you get your eyes off the walker. As soon as you take your eyes off the walker, then you fall. Then when you're falling, that's when you are going under the control of the sin nature. Stan Toussaint, I love Dr. Toussaint. He was a great professor and got to be a good friend, went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago. And Dr. Toussaint wrote, in Galatians 5.16, Paul commands the believer to walk by means of the Spirit. This imperative is followed by ume with the subjunctive, which is an emphatic negation used here as a strong promise. The flesh and spirit are so contrary to one another that a walk by the spirit automatically excludes a fulfillment of the baser desires. In this entire epistle, two alternatives are set before Paul's Christian readers. Either they may walk under law or under grace. These same two choices are open in Galatians 5:16 to 23. 
A walk under law necessitates a walk by means of the flesh. At the same time, a life lived in the grace system automatically involves faith and the Holy Spirit. It is for this reason that the contrast here is between the flesh and the spirit. They are the two driving forces in each of the two systems of law and grace. Now, that's almost a whole Bible class just pulling out all the goodies in that statement. Dr. Toussaint was from, he got polio when he was a little kid, and he was from a little town called Hinckley, Minnesota. None of us who ever had him will ever forget where Hinckley, Minnesota was. Galatians 5.16, you will not, what? Fulfill, bring to completion the lust of the flesh. You won't, you won't let the sin nature take control. You have to stop walking by the Spirit first, and then the default position is that your sin nature takes over. It's the idea that it will be impossible to bring completion to the lust of the flesh. So what we've seen here is, number one, a believer either abides or not, either walks by the Spirit or according to the flesh. Second thing we've seen is both walking by means of the Spirit and abiding in Christ emphasize divine dependency as the sole basis for producing fruit. You can't do it on your own. We can't make ourselves spiritual. We can't produce the character of Christ in our lives. It can only be done through the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Third point, both walking by means of the Spirit and abiding in Christ express an intimacy and the means of maintaining fellowship with the divine person which is not present when the believer is not abiding or walking. God the Holy Spirit is present in the sense that he indwells us, but he's not active, positively active in producing maturity when we're walking by the flesh. When we're walking by the flesh, he's actively involved in convicting us and telling us to confess sin and get back in fellowship, turn around. Thus, it must be concluded that abiding in Christ and walking by the Spirit express overlapping or parallel concepts that are facets of the same dependency, which is the key to spiritual growth. They're talking about the same thing. So we see the results. The works of the flesh are described in verses 19 through 21. That's not an exhaustive list. Those who live with that characteristic are those at the very end, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean they won't be saved. It means that they're going to be among those believers at the judgment seat of Christ who see all of their works burned up, but they enter heaven yet as through fire. In contrast are those who have the fruit of the Spirit, where God, the Holy Spirit, transforms their life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. It is transforming us into our character to mirror the character of Christ. And so the conclusion, I've already talked about this, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit, following in the footsteps that God the Holy Spirit sets down in front of us, walking step by step, following the word of God. So when we look at John 15, 
Galatians 5, 16 to 26, and Ephesians 5, we see this, a similarity. There's a command. In John 15, we're to abide in me, Jesus said. The result is you have fruit, more fruit, or much fruit. In Galatians 5, 16, we're to walk by means of the Spirit. The result is the fruit of the Spirit. In Ephesians 5, we're to walk in the light, walk as children of light, and the result is fruit. That's the key to not having a barren, an idle life. can't be idle if you're in Bible class or listening to the Word of God every day and internalizing it. Dr. Chafer wrote this many years ago. I ran across this quote. I can't remember where I got it. It was probably in his book, He That Is Spiritual. He said, by various terms, the Bible teaches that there are two classes of Christian. I'm going to contrast this with another quote, and then we'll be done. By various terms, the Bible teaches that there are two classes of Christians, those who abide in Christ and those who abide not, those who are walking in the light and those who walk in darkness, those who walk by the Spirit and those who walk as men. Notice he's not contrasting Christians with non-Christians. There are two classes of Christians. He says, those who walk in newness of life and those who walk after the flesh, those who have the Spirit in and upon them and those who have the Spirit in them but not upon them, those who are spiritual and those who are carnal, those who are filled with the Spirit and those who are not. All this has to do with the quality of daily life of saved people and is in no way a contrast between the saved and the unsaved. That governed the teaching of the spiritual life at Dallas Seminary from its founding in the early 1920s up through the 70s. It was still taught by the 70s. Today, if you get the NET Bible, you will turn to 1 John chapter 2, I think it's in verse 4. There's a footnote about abiding. This is what, and all those notes were written by men who were in the New Testament department at Dallas Seminary about 20 years ago. There they say the Greek verb meno, that's the word for abide, is commonly translated in contemporary English as remain or abide, but both of these translations have some problems. One, abide has become in some circles almost a technical term for some sort of special intimate fellowship or close relationship between the Christian and God. They just said, Louis Berry Chafer, you're full of beans. You're wrong. This is is absolutely terrible. They're saying just the opposite of what Dr. Chafer, Dr. Walver, Dr. Ryrie all taught, and Dr. Pentecost and Dr. Toussaint. They turned their back on the heritage of Dallas Seminary. And for these people, every, they go on to say every believer abides. Says, um, so that one, <clears throat> according to them, my view, the view of old Dallas, so that one may speak of Christians who are abiding and Christians who are not abiding. It is accurate to say that the word indicates a close, intimate, and permanent relationship. See, they're making it equivalent to believing. A close, intimate relationship between the believer and God. However, it is very important to note that for the author of the Gospel of John, the Johannine epistles, every genuine Christian has this type of relationship with God. That's pure lordship garbage. Okay? 
I just wanted to throw that out there so you'd see how how bad things have gotten. And it's gotten much worse at DTS and many other schools. There are very few places that continue to teach a consistent view of the spiritual life based upon what Paul is teaching in Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and John's teaching and both the Gospel of John and the Upper Room Discourse and in First John, that we are either abide or we don't abide. To say that every true believer abides, notice that phrase, true believer. Nowhere do you find the Scripture's qualifying belief with any adjective. But they do it. That's just pure arrogance. It's false teaching. And that's what Second Peter Peter's all about, is exposing the false teachers. Father, thank you for the, your grace, your goodness, in providing perfect salvation for us, for providing the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and a spiritual life that is based upon a walk by the Spirit. And it's up to us to either walk by the Spirit or not, and to abide in Christ or not, walk in the light or not. Challenge us with the truth of your word and the need to keep short accounts and confession, and also the need to keep our eye and focus on you, that our life is to be lived in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit and your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.